Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Cree Annotated. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com, and I am joined today by Fred Van Lenti, the writer of the comic book story of basketball, as well as a number of other comics that you are likely familiar with across Marvel, Valiant, and of course, action philosophers, action presidents, and one of my personal favorites, the comic book story of comics, which I enjoy a great deal as a, a comic book fanatic. Fred, thanks so much for taking the time to join. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So you've done comics histories before, like I mentioned. You've done comics histories of comics, uh, again, philosophers, presidents, whole bunch of things. Animation is just coming out now via IDW, which I'm excited to check out with uh, longtime creative partner Ryan Dunleavy. Why basketball? Uh, what was the interest in doing a comic book history of the sport of basketball? Well, um, you know, some projects come from within, from a burning desire on the part of the creator. Some of them come when your agent calls you up and says, hey, they'll pay you money if you write a comic book <laughs> history of basketball. And you say yeah. yes. You know, living in a capitalist society. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy basketball and I was excited to do a history uh, about something like a professional sport, which is very different than um, sort of straight history, which is obviously the Action President ser series, something very academic like philosophy. And then we also did, obviously, the history of comics. Mm -hmm. Basketball was just something that sports is something I've been into for, for decades. And they there's such a great convergence of all these different issues you can talk about with sports in general and with basketball specifically. And there's just so many terrific stories in the story of basketball. It just was, a, you know, I I I. I hope people who read it get as much out of it reading it as I did writing it. I say that every time, but it's especially true because I learned so much doing the book that I found super exciting. And I hope I was able to share that with the readers. That's cool. That's I was going to I wondered. So like I so I'm a big basketball fan, grew up a, a sports fan, played myself. And I, I was curious, like I know the NBA history, you know, in, right. in a lot of ways. But then the one thing the book does that I really enjoyed is it talks about first the origins of the game. Right. Which is like, you know, just it's real history that is that is interesting and less you know, discussed because it's not super applicable uh, to the the way the game is played today. Um, but right. then too, like going into, you know, the social issues, man, it's particularly like the women's game, right? And how that developed in different like stars and players, pioneers in that. Uh, what were the areas for you that were like, that you enjoyed the most, I guess, digging up and then putting into the book? Yeah. And I, and I should say that was a mandate from 10 speed, which is the division of random house that commissioned me to do it in the first place is they, they very much didn't want it to be the comic story of the NBA. They wanted yeah. it to be the comic story of basketball. Right. Um, and they wanted the, the women's game equally, uh, focused on, I mean, yeah, I mean the, the, the sort of fascinating thing about the women's game is you're basically two phases. There are two big, big events in it. Um, at least in the United States, the first one being, Title IX, the civil rights legislation that was passed around the time I was born that allowed you to, that, that forced uh, schools to spend money, actually spend money on their women's programs, right. which then let you train that generation of athletes to be able to then to go pro. Mm -hmm. There were pro women's basketball teams prior to Title IX, but they were barnstormers. They were informal teams that go from town to town and play local players. The most famous was the Arkansas Redheads, which were all gingers, obviously, <laughs> mostly actual gingers. Some, some people, some ways. Some people didn't want, yeah. Yeah. Well, their best shooter at one point was it was Cherokee and she didn't want to dye her, her black hair. So she wore a red wig. So they were all faux. Uh, they are other faux gingers or real gingers. Uh, but, um, 
But then, you know, once the Title IX, first Title IX players started uh, matriculating, that there were some people who were recruited by the NBA. Yeah. Uh, one big star um, got pregnant, and then so she skipped the uh, she yeah. skipped the, the, the tryouts. Another player, Ann Myers, got cut. I think she was with the Pacers. Um, and then, uh, but then you had the other, the second major thing that happened, which was the 1996, uh, summer Olympics in Atlanta Mm -hmm. where basketball USA really put, uh, some serious effort into making sure the best women basketball players from America, I, I almost said it from the world, which sounds dumb because it's an American team, but you know, what when you American- win, you can say those things, I suppose. When you get <laughs> sorry, <old. laughs> I said when you win, you can claim those things. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, but they did actually literally have to go and get them from around the world because the American women would leave America and go play primarily in Europe, yeah. where they could actually play pro and make money. And so, some people they did in fact have to bring back from Italy and Spain and various other places where they were they were playing professionally to play for the um, the women's team, which of course won relatively easily the gold. Uh, they were sort of the, the dream team, the women version of the the first dream team of Michael Jordan and, and Magic and everybody else that was in Barcelona in 92, yeah. which is a wholly separate, totally incredible topic unto itself. Um, but then that was really the basis of the WNBA, was that generation of players was what sort of catapulted the WNBA into being as successful as it was when it first launched. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting history. And it's definitely not something I was like, like the the woman who was on the Pacers and, you know, maybe like got cut like before, make, like even stuff like that. I didn't realize women athletes had made it that far in terms of being on the NBA, because that's still a big thing today where like a football team might have a female kicker or, you know, right. like even just getting yeah. like women in coaching in general management positions like that's still a big deal when those things happen uh, in male sports today. You know, so right. actually having a player who was like that close was that I, I had no idea. That was interesting. Yeah, I mean, the first female player to play in a male pro basketball game was in the ABA, appropriately enough, which was sort of the the wacky, uh, totally in your face. I like, I like to call them the poochie of the dog of 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 yeah of professional sports for those Simpsons fans out there, because they they uh, the there was a team called the I believe it was the Kentucky Colonels that had the first. She was she basically they they she was a jockey like it was a whole thing like she was the first female jockey and that in itself was a in the Kentucky Derby and that was in itself kind of a, a publicity stunt. Mm-hmm. Then they hired that same person to come on and play on the Colonels um, and they put her in for one. She basically I think either made a pass or received a pass and then immediately got benched. It was like but one still, minute a game. Yeah. 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 And the Colonel's really interesting because they were bought as the name. What's funny is that they were called the Colonels, but it, but then they got bought by the guy who actually owned Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, and then he put his, and then he, he put his wife in charge of the colonels and people said, you know, you're a woman, you don't know anything about basketball. And he, she said, well, my husband doesn't, doesn't know anything about chicken. So <laughs> see what your point is. Uh, and then the colonels won the ABA uh, championship and they threw her in the shower, which was the big ABA tradition at the time. Oh, okay. Won the championships, the owner got tossed in the shower. Okay. Everybody was fully clothed though. This is nothing. Not too scandalous. Nothing, nothing yeah. untoward, nothing sketchy going on there. They weren't that wacky. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, what was, when you were digging through this research, it, it, again, it is interesting how it kind of ties into like, you know, American history and, and some of the civil rights movement. Obviously, like you talked about the Harlem Globetrotters in the early days and just like what a big deal it was to see 
you know, black athletes being the best at something, but obviously in a, in America that was not ready for that, you know, structurally, what, what was some of the information that was like the most surprising to you, or you think the most kind of enlightening, um, from your, your dig? Cause it's a, it's a really tight book, you know, it's, it's not yeah. like it, obviously the history of basketball is a thing that could be sprawling. This is not sprawling. Like it's tight and you get, you get to the point and you get to the core details. Um, what was surprising to you? What were you glad you, you found? Well, you know, talking about desegregation or, or, you know, the de-whitening of the sport in general, like the, uh, I, I thought it was interesting that the first non-white player in the NBA, it was called the BA at the time, was Wat Misaka, who was a Japanese-American star yeah. at Utah. And he he was on the Knicks for, in 47, which was the same year, obviously, that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in, ba- in baseball. So it yeah. just sort of, sort of interesting to me that, that basketball was sort of, desegregated and what's fascinating is that um you know the real um sort of barrier to desegregation in basketball was not necessarily racism unto itself but the fact that um Abe Saperstein who owned the Harlem Globetrotters his whole brand revolved around having black stars and so if you were a really good black basketball player Abe Saperstein would make sure to recruit him and this was at a period, I mean, people joke about this today, but like the Harlem Globetrotters were a big deal and the biggest draw in professional basketball for decades, Yeah, at least until the 70s. Um, they were much bigger than any individual NBA team. They started out as a barnstorming team in Chicago, as I like to say, the Harlem Globetrotters were neither from Harlem, nor did they trot the globe. They basically <laughs> barnstormed around the Midwest area. Yeah. Um, and, and when you say barnstorming, this was not something I was aware of. This was a like literal, like we're going to go and perform in barns thing. Like that's the origin right. of the term. I didn't know. Yeah, that. it's a, yeah, it's a term stolen from, it's a ter- term from theater, right? Is that theater troops would go around and they just play in the barn because it's the biggest building that can house them in these little towns. And before there were pro leagues, and even while there were pro leagues, like there were lots of, lots of baseball, you know, barnstormer pro, even though there was MLB has been around since the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. The, um, you would go from town to town and basically you would um, just basically challenge either the local high school team or, you know, usually you would find the five tallest guys in town. Right. Mm-hmm. And the town, this, these little parochial towns would be like, yeah, you know, like had that kind of, you know, the, the arrogance of ignorance right like they're like our guys could beat anybody we're the best you know and then you would come in and you would just destroy them because you were actually a professional basketball team and if you were you know you would you make big money you made money on that count you know probably there were side bets going on and so the harlem globetrotters were so good they were all guys who had grown up playing together in chicago they were so good that they would just destroy whoever they're going up against and then they'd start clowning like the clowning the clown show as it were the the comedy bits were earned in the sense that they would first run up the score to some bananas level with and the 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 home team would have no chance of coming back and then they'd start you know hiding the ball in their pants and you know yeah (laughs) spinning it on their 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 fingers and and that kind of stuff or putting it through the bottom of the hoop um and then then it was only after that that um uh that it really became uh, that became the focus of the show was be, was they actually dragged along the generals, you know, and the, yeah. you know, and it's like pro wrestling, right? It's pro, like, oh, pro wrestling isn't fake. It's, it isn't, it isn't, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, they, 
I think the generals actually beat the Globetrotters once in the 70s. Like, <laughs> like, legitimately. So That's amazing. Been, yeah. I don't know if they were all hung over that day or what, what was going on there. But <laughs> but yeah, they got beat once. Um, but now the Harlem Globetrotters are, in fact, owned by, by a black guy. And they are from New York City now. So yeah. <laughs> it'll change. But uh, so it was Red Orbach, who's this, who was legendary uh first the coach and then later well he wouldn't point he was the coach and the general manager of the of the celtics mm-hmm. um attempted to recruit black Paris as early as 1950 so this is like within three years of wat masaka playing and you know as aberstein threatened to yank the listen what he would do is he would threaten he would yank the globetrotters from like boston garden made a significant amount of ticket sales from the Harlem Globetrotters. So as Abe Staberstein saying, if you hire away my black players, you will not get, we will ban Boston mm-hmm. or at least ban the garden from our route. That was not an idle threat. That was something that Boston garden had to take seriously. So it took years for, um, uh, that to change. And what really changed, what really sort of made the, the white owners finally throw their hands up and stop listening. Abe Saberstein was the shot clock, which was introduced in the mid fifties because games got really super boring um, it was literally, you know, it was watching keep away for two hours. You know, yeah. it was just, this, this is a real snooze fest. It was not at all as exciting as the, as the college game. And once the, um, uh, shot clock got introduced, big stars who were big guys like George McCann, Mr. Basketball, who was the Lakers big star quit. You know, they, he was, I think he retired at 29 to become a lawyer and later commissioner of the ABA. Yeah. He was probably young. Just, yeah, that. he just didn't want to. And so he went and got his law degree and became a lawyer, yeah. you know, just because they didn't want to compete in this new era. So the, you know, the sort of the fast kind the fast break kind of basketball was something, A, that black players were very good at, and B, a lot of white players quit, hmm. you know, once the shot clock got yeah. got introduced. And so they, they finally said, screw you, Abe Staberstein. And, you know, Abe's was not, you know... Uh, making he wasn't being irrational trying to keep his players away from the nba because guys like like will chamberlain famously then quit the globetrotters mm-hmm. uh and went to have this giant nba career yeah you know? yeah i didn't know will had a had a globetrotters career first yeah yeah he actually quit he left left school or he left school too soon to be to qualify for the nba and the, so he went to the globetrotters mm-hmm. first no it's all it's all really interesting stuff when you're on the comic side when you're writing a history of of anything really but in this case basketball how do you script the visual components um so in this case you're working with artists joe cooper dave schwartz um they do a really nice job like and and one thing that i love on these uh, visual histories whether with them or, or even on ryan dunleavy um is like giving a visual flair to something that is otherwise history right it's like it's not you're describing what's happening right but it's they do their thing and it makes it where there's like, Oh, and there's Michael Jordan playing the aliens from space jam or whatever the visual cue is that right. makes it interesting. That, that gives some pop to it. How much, how do you don't sue us Warner brothers? <laughs> right. He's exactly. not asked for permission. <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell him. How do you script that? How do you, how do you, do you give them stuff that you're like, Hey, this visual hint might be cool. Do you leave it totally up to them? What's your approach on that stuff? Well, the script for the nonfiction comics is identical, both in format and sort of my attitude to it, whether I'm doing, you know, Amazing Spider-Man or Our Charms Wrong, any one of the, the mainstream comics I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's like a play script. It's There's dialogue and scene description. I make a lot of use of hyperlinks to visual reference um, 
Ryan Dunlavey is very good at looking up reference himself. Joe has ended up being very good at looking up reference himself. Uh, it's real tough on the colorist because particularly for the first half of the book, there's no color, almost no color images. So you kind of mm-hmm. have to guess like yeah. what, what these, some of these team colors are. Um, and also like a lot of the colleges have really specific, like this is Navy blue. This is oh. Rob. Like the blue has to be, it has to differentiate between all the other blues and it's, mm. it's a big pain in the butt. And the other challenge is like, you know, unlike somebody like say Bart Simpson, who never changes his hairstyle or his clothing, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's facial hair alone causes us to tear our hair out because it's sometimes <laughs> he's bald, sometimes he has big hair, sometimes he's cross clop, sometimes yeah. he has a beard, sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he's a mustache, sometimes he just has, you know, and sometimes he's clean shaven. And so it's like we had to like sort of balance historical accuracy with people being able to identify the character, right, of yeah. a of a very famous real person who changes their look because they're a normal real person and they're not a cartoon character. They yeah. change their outfits and their, and their hair as they, as they move through life. That was that, 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 that this in particular is very challenging because I think for the first time we were, I was dealing with people who weren't just, um, uh, you know, historically famous, but like 20 late 20th century famous that they've been photographed 700 billion times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I imagine if I start writing figures who, you know, post internet age, that's going to have the same kind of situation. Right. It's, it's also sort of fascinating. Cause like, you also don't want to have like, um, you know, 800 shots panels of guys playing basketball. Cause it gets kind of old really quick. Yeah. And basketball, one of the things that I found sort of fascinating, particularly when I was going through like old YouTube videos of like, games from the 70s and 80s is that it's a it's a sport that is so fast moving and Mm -hmm. comics are good at action they're good at a lot of things one thing they're not great at and you know you'll learn if you do this often enough is they're not great at showing complex moments in progression and a lot of photos of famous people going up for layups or blocking shots or whatever it's just a tangle of limbs like it's this incomprehensible you know mishmash of of human poses and yeah I think in many cases, the stronger panels in the book is where Joe just had to make stuff up because yeah. taking it from photos is accurate, but it, it visually looks weird because it's stills and not that, that you know, uh, one of the things we're talking about in the book is there's a guy, a uh, neurologist who talks about one of the reasons maybe Michael Jordan is so good mm, yeah. is that he, he actually sees reality at a, at a wavelength of consciousness that's faster than the regular person, which is how he is able to, um, uh, you know, his strip of film, right. That's going through his brain has much more frames in it than yours or mine does. So he can actually anticipate what defenders are doing. You know, the common thing about, uh, Jordan, what, a, what opponents would talk about would be that they, he, they knew what he was going to do, but they still couldn't stop him. Mm. You know, they, he still got through them. And that's one part. Po- I don't know how much, Weight. It's an interesting idea. I don't know how much weight I put into that scientifically. I'm not a scientist, but uh, but uh, that that describing that frame rate is very similar to the challenges you have in comics because just as consciousness is in these individual moments, comics are these individual images, and it was a bit of a challenge to um, depict something like basketball, which is such a fluid, fast-moving sport, in still images. Sure. Yeah, no, it is interesting. And that actually ties into something else I was thinking about. So this year has actually seen a surprising 
maybe not surprising, but it, to me, like kind of a shocking number of really good basketball comics um, like this, this among them. But there's been Dragon Hoops by Jean-Lun Yang, which I think yep. is fantastic. Um, I really like the Map to the Sun by Sloan Leong. I don't know if you check that out, but it, uh, Kyle Starks even on Old Head, which is, you know, a comedy, but it's still basketball focused. Uh, why do you think that? And it's interesting as you're talking about the challenges in processing it visually i can totally picture even like dragon hoops a book that i absolutely adored um you know it's a lot of like static images stacked against each other different frames of progression you know you're trying to sell the motion and the kinetic energy of basketball in a way that obviously it's it's not a video right you can't um do you have any thoughts on like why basketball was so popular this year uh in particular uh is there anything like in terms of the history or just in terms of your own research where you're like yeah this it makes sense to me that this was big uh, in comics this year? It's a good question. I mean, you know, it's hard for me to answer because, you know, particularly if you're doing a 162 page graphic novel, I believe I started working on this book in 2016. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I don't know, like, when Gene started his book, because his book is partly a memoir, right? Yeah. It's a very autobiographical thing. So I don't know. I don't know what um, sort of inspired him to do that. Uh but yeah, it's 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 hard to make those kind of comparisons. Since I write a lot about entertainment, it's hard for me to do that because like everything starts at different times, and people are totally ignorant, you know, about what sure what uh you know the other person's doing because you're not announcing it yet. But I, I think that there's probably a lot of truth to the fact that I think it's arguable, and this is something we get to at the very end of the book is that it's arguable that basketball has sort of become the national pastime or at least it's, it's such a global pastime at this point in a way right. that no sport other than soccer really um you know does i mean sherman alexi has this great quote that's also in the book where he talks about that that basketball is to america what soccer is to other countries and that it's the poor person's sport you know mm. you, because of the proliferation of courts at least you can sort of play anywhere while baseball you need this very sort of you need this big open space football you need an even bigger open space you know hockey yeah. you need a pond you know or something and it needs to be winter and a lot and, of people and a lot of people yeah, yeah. you only need 10 people to play a proper basketball game five on each team but uh yeah I, I i think maybe it's just sort of time right it's just sort of saturation if anything you know post I mean, I sort of get the feeling that post the late, the big, uh, you know, sort of LeBron, Steph Curry battles, like we've actually kind of basketball kind of has nowhere to go but down at this point because it's it achieves such sort of a high saturation level. That's interesting. Yeah, I could see that, too. It, it's quite popular, but now it is. It's funny because, you know, you write the history and then it's an ongoing thing. So it's like and now it's a new era, essentially, too. But yes. Like this history is going to be different because now you're in this era of players you you kind of end the book kind of on the decision, you know, the LeBron moment from right. The right yeah. And you talk about LeBron and his his progression, but the decision being this huge kind of crazy moment in, in the history of the sport. And now it's become this thing where it's like, yeah, and now everyone does that. They just don't host ESPN specials about it, um, <laughs> but they right. pick wherever they want to go, like seemingly every year. Right. So it's a very different feel to the sport, at least for me, uh, as somebody who grew up with like the Jordan Bulls was my team uh, where guys sure. stay on the same team. You know, and now it's like, yeah, they might bounce every two years. And it's just the right. game at the NBA level, at least, uh, feels quite different. The global perspective I really appreciated from this yeah. book because that's something that my American focus lens misses a lot is like, yeah, this game's huge other places. And, you know, we don't really have that with the NFL, with baseball, right? Like it, baseball, maybe to a lesser degree, but it's, yeah, it's basketball is like, it's easy to pick up. You can do it anywhere. And it's, you know, Jordan and, and at all, right? The David Stern era, there's like a huge 
growth of the global game, um, which makes it makes it big other places, which is, you know. Yeah, I mean, they're they're both both soccer and um, basketball are both urban games you can play outside. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, basketball was literally invented to play indoors, right? It was a bad winter in Springfield, Massachusetts, and Naismith had to come up with something for his phys ed students to play. Yeah, I do love that, uh, that origin of it, which was just like yeah. these these phys ed students just being like absolute brutes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, <laughs> beating the crap out of Yeah, because they're used to rugby, rugby, you know? Yeah. And I also just like the idea of like, oh, well, we have this gym. Let's just, you know, nail some peach baskets up on either end of the gym. And, See what happens. Yeah. You know, get a rugby ball and here we are, you know? Yeah, totally. No, it's awesome. Uh, do you have a preference between writing like histories like this or doing superhero comics? Obviously, you've done a fair amount of each. Uh, do you do you flex like pretty different muscles? You mentioned the scripting process is is similar in terms of the actual craft of like what it looks, the end product looks like. Uh, but on your end, like kind of what's your what's your preference? What's your focus? I, you know, the actual research and writing of um, a basketball comic is or excuse me, a nonfiction comic is super rewarding. Um, and it's almost a guarantee reward just because I love doing that so much, but it's very exhausting. Mm. <laughs> it's very challenging to sort of maintain that. Like I just finished the last issue of the animation book last week and it took me, I think six, like it took me like a month and a half and I'm, and I'm even talking about it from ground zero. Like I'd already been reading and watching and, and thinking, Yeah, but the actual writing of it took, five to six weeks which for a 22 page comic is bananas like mm-hmm. <laughs> like you know i can i could a fiction comic takes you know a fifth of that um but uh and i do really like doing fiction so it's it's hard to say I, it's one of those things where if i'm doing the fiction comic i pine for you know the the sort of intricacies and challenges of doing a non-fiction comic if i'm doing a non-fiction comic i pine for you know, the ability to do whatever the hell I want for the most part in a, in a fiction book. So it's, 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 it's like this. Yeah, sure. You know, it's, it's one, sorry, I, I did the scales motion for people who. <laughs> Thank you for Yeah. I always forget that people cannot see what we can see. Um, when you're given your kind of like your, the way your mind works as a historian, right. On these different projects. And, and you do some like article writing for um 13th dimension too, on like, you know, comics history and stuff that you've enjoyed in the past or, or didn't enjoy, right. Whichever way you write about it. How, how do you think that like um, that fit into your Marvel work or your Valiant work, right. Your superhero stuff in terms of like, did you, do you feel like you brought more of a historian's viewpoint in terms of, I don't know, pulling in continuity, pulling in lessons from the past than some other creators do? Or do you think those are like kind of different lanes? Um, when I was doing Marvel heavily, like you'd get a lot of fan reaction that people were like, they saw my stuff's kind of as a throwback, um, to like the eighties, which is probably when I, you know, was, which is when I was a kid. And then when I was sort of reading comics most heavily, Sure, I don't think that was necessarily like me trying to, do retro stuff other than like um, that's just sort of the, what, what superhero, I guess I, my mind was sort of stuck with Marvel being in the eighties. And so that's the last time I read a Marvel comics in the significant amount. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, when you're doing any kind of writing, it's always great to have um, characters who have a past, right? You want to, you want the characters to feel like they had a life before yeah. the story started and assuming they survived the story, have a life afterwards. And continuity is sort of a great way of doing that. And I think that there is, um, I think there's a bad way to do that and a good way to do that. Like, I don't think, as time out, you mentioned my 13th dimension column, I mentioned last time is that, you know, 
when I was growing up, you know, even, you know, when I was a teenager, people were complaining that complicated superhero continuity was killing comics and people couldn't pick up a random issue of X-Men and follow it. But, right. you know, I, I've, I've never bought that because it's not like it's not like you can grab the volume 15 of one piece and know what the fuck is going on. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> right. And that yeah. sells 15 million copies an issue. You know what I mean? So I've never bought the continuity. I'm like, why shouldn't you make people buy the other issues? Like this make me, it doesn't make any economic sense to me. You know? Yeah. But but for years and even when I was working at Marvel, the editors had it sort of drummed into them that um, you had to make. The, for th- this phrase was really popular in Marvel, which was every comic is someone's first comic. Yeah. And that's who you're writing to. And that's like, I'm like, why are we writing to 3% of our readership? It's insane. <laughs> like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But I think it, I mean, I think it, I mean, I'm a little cynical and I think that might have something to do with the fact that that's something editors can control. And, you know, it was, it's, it's an easy, ex- if your book's not selling, it's sort of an easy excuse for why it isn't. Mm. Um, but I just feel like it's just, that's just, crazy talk to me that 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 not that somehow everything kind of needs to be this sort of self-contained thing right you know because to me then you'll get stuff like you know i mean god bless the fine folks at dc but how many times a year do they do batman's origin story like how many times yeah do you need to read or see or listen to or enjoy in Rebus form Batman's <laughs> origin story? If I see those pearls one more time, I'm going to jump out a window. <laughs> uh, fingers, but, crossed, uh, fingers crossed that the next version will uh, will not do the pearls, the shoe, but I, I'm not holding the, my breath. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, people just, you know. It's such a primal moment, I guess, seeing your parents killed in front of you. People just want to go back to it over and over and over and mm-hmm. over again. Um, so yeah, so, uh, I never really, I mean, they, they ended up because my nonfiction comics got a lot of press back then. They, they had me do things like we did a whole origin of the Marvel universe, like one page, um, origins of, um, various superheroes, like the Marcos Martin one I did with Daredevil. So I got to work with Marcos Martin, you know, Mike Diodato, John Romita Jr. You know, it's like, yes, please. (laughs) That was, that was a night that was really cool. The. I still get royalties, bizarrely enough, from the one page. People use that Daredevil thing over and over and over again. Yeah, nice. Um, so, uh, and then at one point, someone at Marvel was going to ask me and Ryan to do, we had developed for them like a web comic or like history of Marvel comics. Mm. Someone higher up was like, Meh, no. Oh, that's too bad. That would be interesting. Yeah, because they, I mean, they just did a, a history of Marvel Universe. Um, I think it was Mark Wade. Yeah, that's right. Mark Wade did that. In issue format, right. Yeah, yeah, I um, saw that. That's which is cool. which is an interesting approach. I mean, I, I I tend to take the same attitude you do regarding continuity, which is like, I really like actually that this is this sprawling massive story that has decades of issues. I understand the complexity of trying to get in, right? There are certain roads and, sure. and on-ramps that are better than others. Um, but that's kind of the thing is like, yeah, to your one piece analogy, like if you start with Amazing Spider-Man number 632, like you might have a hard time, <laughs> but but you just jumped in on very deep into the story, you know? Well, yeah, when manga doesn't do like, you know, the, I think the the, the both the, the mainstream comics book companies have really screwed themselves because chasing the number the, that number one uh, sales boost, because what one piece does not do is there's not 15 different volume uh volume uh, one, one excuse me there's not 15 different versions of one piece volume one yeah right, right, right. there's one one piece volume one yeah and you start there and they just go to the end there's not like they don't reboot the numbering of one piece every 15 months yeah you know 
but and so it makes something like comicsology impossible to deal with because mm-hmm. you, you it's like where like it's almost like it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy they've been focused so much on the continuity of the individual issues yeah actually getting your hands on the correct um starting point is a nightmare yeah well right and that's led to those those you know things that people like talk about a lot where it's like unbeatable squirrel girl had two number ones in the same year <laughs> which is like oh, unprecedented wow. i think some other series have done that as well um but yeah no it, it leads to a bit of a cluster which can be tricky um speaking of one of the marvel books that you did which is taskmaster which has only had uh three number one so far there was a 2002 <laughs> series there was one you did are you right of it then are you sure i think you, yeah i guess you are right i guess they had one this year one a new one this year and yeah was, i think there was the udon udon one before me and mm-hmm. there was me and i think uh, you're number F. two yeah which is a, a really great miniseries I, I like it quite a bit as a as a good task taskmaster focused series mm-hmm. for fans of the character they should check that out as somebody who's written what I would say is the best mini so far, we'll see we'll see how volume three goes. Um, what do you hope for for that character like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? That's been kind of a big deal that Taskmaster is coming to the Black Widow movie. Um, do you, as someone who has written these characters, do you have sort of like wishes and and like hoping that they, they're pulling from your stuff, that they're like, you know, reaching into the same sentiment? Like, what do you, what do you look for as somebody who's had a hand in that character's development? Well, number one, he shouldn't look like Skeletor. Like, <laughs> I, had, I, had, I, I had to like, well, I had to like grab Hefte through my computer screen and I'd reach my hands out into Spain and just shake him and be like, <laughs> it's it's a mask. He does not literally have a human skull head. With yeah. Eyes in it. Which, which, which no that's... one has, which, which I am absolutely in the minority. I was like, go back to George Perez's original design. Yeah. Taskmaster from Avengers. It's, it's kind of hilarious because it's, it's, the exact same color scheme as De- uh, Deathstroke, mm-hmm. which Perez designed like four years after that. Yeah. But uh, uh, in fact, to the point where I was writing this video, this Avengers video game for, for Marvel games and they like, and I put Taskmaster, like writing video games is such a, is a whole other topic, but like. Wait, I the new Taskmaster- one? Or is this a different one? No, 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 no. This one was like, uh, this one was twin. This was the Avengers initiative. The, I think it was called Avengers Initiative. Anyway, it came okay. out like 2013 or something. It okay. It's for the iPad. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I know you're talking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although the new uh, the Square Enix game has a couple, has Monica Rappuccini, which I created as one of the main villains, which I thought was cool. Nice. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, so I put in Taskmaster and they animated him, but they were like obsessed with him being, so they gave him Skeletor's voice because they thought that would be funny. <laughs> and I was just like, you know. <laughs> you know yeah. the whole that whole nine yards and i i'm too, i'm actually too old to have really seen he-man so it's not that's not a reference that means anything to me anymore. yeah yeah uh you know given the plot of the black widow movie i don't really have high hopes that anything i did with taskmaster is going to actually end up in the movie yeah um the lauren sankovich who was the one of the avengers editors at the time said hey why don't you do something with taskmaster and my first thought was who cares skeletor or whatever um, but then I, but I knew cause I had actually bought like the first time he fought Scott, Scott Lang and, uh, Spider-Man and Marvel team up was one of the first comics I remember buying with my mm. own two quarters. Sure. Um, and so I did kind of an affection for him, but I, and I knew that he had the whole memory thing and I literally that we were at a bar and she, she asked me and I was like, I don't know. And, but then that same night I was falling asleep and it, the, the thought just hit me that what if his, um, the actual like memory files of 
you know, Shang-Chi's moves and Iron and Iron Fist's moves and whoever's moves actually overrode his own personal memory banks, like the way a, a big file would do on a computer. Right. And then that the story just kind of all kind of came out of that. It would be cool if that aspect of the character somehow made it into the um uh the the movie, but I'm not <laughs> I'm we'll see. You know, Whenever, I, I yeah. Whenever, I, uh, whenever I'll get, I'll get some nice take, royalties yeah. from when they resell the Taskmaster book, or and I actually already have since they. Yeah, since you've, seen, the, you've seen a bump in that already. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, obviously the movie is supposed to come out in May or something, right? Whenever right. it was, and so the Taskmaster booked me with me in the Udon series. Unfortunately, they have not sent that one to me yet. But uh, yeah, that hasn't come yet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good deal. Well, but yeah, I don't know. I yeah, I I have no insight as to that. I uh, a bunch of characters, a couple characters I created are in the Modoc Hulu show and the showrunners been cool about showing me some stuff from that. Nice. Nice. I feel like Modoc's 11 would, should be uh, getting a bump there as well. Cause that, that's yes. really fun. Super villain series. That's a good, yes, one. that's, I just reread that the other day. That's, that's, that's one where I actually was like, mm, you did a pretty good job there. That's another yeah. very continuity heavy miniseries where I think I did a pretty good job of, I don't know why I'm patting myself. I'm like, I literally just read it again two days ago sure. because I was talking with the Modoc guys. Um, they told me they're doing Modox 11 in, in the Hulu show, but because, <laughs> which I didn't even really realize this, most of Modox 11 are all um, Spider-Man villains. So they're right. um, they're owned by Sony. Yeah. So they had to swap out actual Modox 11, you know, characters right. for some, you know, some substitutes. I don't know who they substituted for, but yeah. That's cool that it's inspiration, though. I mean, that'll be exciting. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that show because Modoc, in a a clearer comedy vein, makes yes. a lot of sense. I don't. You mentioned the Square Enix. Well, Pat Aswell will do such a good job. Oh yeah, yeah. It'll be it'll you be know, funny. It'll be it'll be great. Um, but you mentioned the Square Enix game, and Modoc is is in that game. I don't want to spoil right. it for you, but uh, he's very serious. <laughs> he's very serious. Oh yeah. <laughs> and in it a good way. Um, it's okay. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't. Despise I know that's, it. that's a very troubled game, unfortunately. It is. It is indeed. Uh, I I prefer comedy Modoc for sure. Um, yeah. All right. What is what is your proudest superhero work outside of the the history space? What's the one that you're like? This is my my favorite comic that I've written. Uh, I did a book for Val- uh, Valiant called Ivar Time Walker. Yeah, that's a twelve issue time travel story romance, and I that's probably my favorite. Nice. I have thought about this time to time, primarily because people ask me. Uh, it's a lot of what I do that I really like. To, I have a romance element. I should probably go back to that well a little bit more like Taskmaster I'd put in my top five. Yeah. And that has another heavy romance element in it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I really liked a lot of the stories I did for Amazing Spider-Man. Um, that was a cool era. I, I yeah. the Spidey Brain Trust era. Yeah. I mean, Marvel Zombies 3 is pretty good, and it's got, a again, it got a very strong kind of romantic core in that, too, which is a weird thing to say about a comic called Marvel Zombies 3, but it's true, but it's true. Yeah. Um, uh, Yeah. Good pick. And Archer and Armstrong's a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Hercules. I like the good. I like the good Valiant stuff. Um, what, how many, all right, final question I think I'll ask, and then I'll, I'll give you your time back, your day back. What, how many championships would LeBron have to win for you to consider goat status over michael jordan you make the argument that basically it's impossible but like is there a is there a certain number of championships that lebron could win that you'd be like okay i i see it now no because the goat status isn't is goes beyond numbers yeah you know it's beyond 
you know, all of Babe Ruth's records, I believe, have all been broken. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, multiple times and not even not all of them with steroids, you know. Yeah. Sure. Um, but he's still the goat because of where he was, you know. Culturally, I mean, like, you know, the the person to conflate it with another nonfiction series that did, you know. Abraham Lincoln is considered to be the greatest, you know, president of all time. He didn't pass the most bills. He didn't, you know, didn't win the biggest, really necessarily the biggest war in terms of actual size. Yeah. But there are all these other reasons that people put him up there as goat in that particular category. And I would, you know, I would put Jordan in that same category simply because he was both unprecedented and what he did can't be repeated because he did it. So you don't have to do it again. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? It's like, yeah. you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, you can't become your own grandpa. I don't know how else to put it. You know what I mean? Like that thing <laughs> happened and now it's over. And now, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, you're, you're always going to be the first, even though you only went in, and, you know, I can't remember her name at the moment. So I should have looked it up. But, you know, you there only can be one first woman to play in the first in a male basketball game. And that right. happened in 1975, whenever it was. Right. And that's it. You know, that's just the way it is, you know. And and, and there is she the greatest female basketball player of all time? No, <laughs> absolutely not. But still, that's a thing that happened. You know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. There we go. All right. So people should check out the comic book story of basketball. I think it, definitely if you're a basketball fan, um, even if you're not, again, there's some really interesting like history and just ways that it kind of ties into, frankly, other issues, social, political, whatever. Um, it, there's some good stuff in there. So, Fred, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, where can people find like what's up next for you? I know you got uh, the comic book story of animation is coming out as we are recording this. That's going to be, I think, a five issue series. Five right? issue starting uh, December 9th. Okay. From IDW, uh, because that comic is shipping late. The second issue will be out two weeks after that. Okay, cool. So you can get so it on. So both it, two issues of comic book history of animation are dropping this month. Uh, I'm writing uh, a super fun zombie crossover for Dynamite called Die! Exclamation point Namite. That's, that's in stores now. <laughs> okay. Um, and there's lots more stuff down the pipe. Awesome. Awesome. Anywhere else guess, people sorry, can find you? where people can reach me. Uh, if you can spell my name, Fred Van Lenty, that's me on Twitter, Facebook, and that's my website. It's fredvanlenty.com. Sounds good. All right, Fred, this was a blast. Thanks so much for joining, and uh, cool. we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Dave.